This morning we'll be reading Exodus chapter 4. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4, starting at verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back into your cloak. He said, So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who make him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and you would speak to people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh and all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pause for a moment and come before our God in prayer as we uh, come to look at his word together. Father, we pray that you would speak clearly through your word. Lord, this is a a long and challenging passage to go through, yet we would wish to go through all sections of your word, Lord, that we would 
have presented to us, Lord, your entire counsel. Help us to see all of your goodness and your grace in this passage, that we would be instructed, and that as we go from this doors this morning, Lord, we would leave with increased faith in you, faith in your goodness and your love and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would encourage you to open your Bibles and keep them open at Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be continuing in our study on Exodus. And I'm going to be trying the fairly um, challenging task of going through the entire chapter, which is worrying, seeing as I'm an aerospace engineer, and aerospace projects aren't known for being completed on schedule. But I will do my best. As an introduction, we see that Exodus has started with linking the story of Jacob's family back, and that, that starts the story in the book of Exodus. It tells how the people of Israel were enslaved and how an attempt was made to eradicate these people who had become a threat to the hosting nation by killing off all the boys. And as these things are presented, one wonders as the story goes along, how will God keep his promises? How will the seed of the woman crush the serpent's head? How will all the nations be blessed? How will the seed of Abraham be multiplied? And when will God's people receive the land that has been promised for them? And when ultimately, as Graham Goldsworthy has said, when will God's people return to be God's people in God's place under God's rule? Yet whilst all this oppression had happened, there still lingers in the people of Israel a fear and a knowledge of God. Although not all of them, it still resides there in the people. And whilst it's not seen as any, in any kind of pompous piety, it's seen in the real life as two Hebrew midwives defy the edict of the Pharaoh, the rule of arguably the greatest civilization at the time, and they defy his command to kill all the baby boys. This was a civilization of immense greatness, a civilization which had spanned many hundreds and hundreds of years, and coming to it as an engineer, a very technologically advanced civilization at the time. Some of the pyramids would have predated this story by perhaps up to a thousand years. And when they look at the pyramids, I thought it was kind of interesting, they notice that the bases on some of them are completely flat, completely horizontal to within 15 millimeters, which is actually pretty impressive. I tell you as an engineer. They also need to have known some advanced calculus and some advanced trigonometry to be able to calculate how to do these. And even today, they, don't, they haven't figured out exactly how they did all these things. And the king of this great civilization was deemed to be a god in their unusual pantheon, in their own religion. And it was the Israelites who had been cruelly oppressed and they had slave masters over them and they were put into forced labor for the construction of two large cities for the Pharaoh that would be store cities. So it is in this context that the Israelites were there with bitter lives of hard labor and also from being forced to work in the fields that the story shifts then and tells this incredible story that you could imagine getting picked up by Disney or someone like that of an incredibly ingenious mother and her scheme to save the life of her son. The son who would subsequently be found in the river by none other than the, one of the princesses of Egypt, and the child would be adopted into the royal family, while simultaneously being brought up by his actual mother, who served as his nurse. We read in Acts chapter 7, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So when he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian... So, sorry, he, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. They tried to he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years has passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. 
And this is where we come to the scene of our story, which has already been preached on uh, last week. And here stands Moses with a wonder before him, a burning bush, which is burning, which is burning and not consuming the bush. We continue to look this morning at the dialogue between Moses and the Lord in the burning bush. And even as the, after the commands of the Lord tell of the good news of how he's going to deliver his people from their mis- misery, Moses essentially resists the command of God. And as we heard last week, highlighting his unsuitability for the task. Who am I, Lord? And yet, in answer to this, God reassured him of his presence. He also highlighted the problems that would happen with hypothetical questions that may come from the people. Who shall I say sent me? And to this, God gives a rather enigmatic answer of, I am who I am. And as we learnt last week, Whilst this may speak volumes to God's eternal nature and his non-contingent being, it was primarily given here as a promise to Moses of God's continued presence with him. God continues to remind Moses how he is the God of their forefathers, the God of the covenant to Abraham. And God continues in the tail end of chapter 3. He reiterates God's presence for the task. He reminds them of the covenant promise of the land. He reassures Moses that the Israelites will listen and that God would indeed ensure that Pharaoh would let the people go. And not only that, the Israelites would eventually plunder the land and they would leave Egypt with great wealth. And this brings us to our passage this morning. So after a reassurance in the tail end of chapter 3 where God's sketches out his plan between Moses' responses. Moses continues in verse 1. Then Moses answered the Lord, but suppose the Israelites do not believe me and will not listen to what I I say. What shall I do if they say to me that you did not appear to me? Except for the fact that God has already told him that they will believe in chapter 3 verse 8, Moses essentially says, Lord, all the things that you're saying are great. But what if they don't still, if they, what if they don't listen? Suppose the Israelites don't believe. Moses forgets the fact that God doesn't need to suppose anything at all. God knows what will happen. And it is interesting when you look at Acts chapter 7, perhaps to get some context to why Moses responded in this way. It was a verse actually I intentionally omitted when we read it the first time. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Moses essentially could have said, Lord, I have tried before. Not only does the passage show that he tried before, he tried before on God's behalf, on the same God that he's talking to, on his behalf. And this highlights, I think, some of the reluctance that Moses would have felt, perhaps rightly so. What happened when he had tried his previous attempt? It had ended with him having to run away from from the land where he had been brought up and had to hide in another land for 40 years. They hadn't believed me in the past. And before we start to judge Moses too harshly from the comfort of the pews this morning, how how frequently can we shrink back from the comfort, from the commands of the Lord based on our own bad experiences when sometimes we know God has commanded us to do things and when we have tried to step out in faith and got our fingers burnt and yet it can sometimes these bad experiences can make us reluctant to want to be obedient to God's command God's clear command we see in the next section between verse 2 and verse 9 God essentially giving Moses some backup, some additional material that he can use to substantiate his claim that he is indeed sent by the God of the fathers, the God of the covenant. He gives him three signs. He gives him the staff or the walking stick in some translations to throw on the floor and pick it up and it uh, it becomes a snake and then when he picks it up it becomes a staff again. He takes his hand, he puts it inside his his robe, he brings it out, it's leprous and covered in um, a disease. He puts it back in, it's restored. And also the water which is turned into blood. Now whilst a lot of uh, attempts have been made to, 
talk about the various symbolic significance of each of these miracles, I'd like to stray away from that for the moment and essentially highlight the fact that God accommodates to Moses' concern and he gives him a means by which the people can have some signs by which his claims can be substantiated. God does bend a little bit. He doesn't say just go because I told you so and say what I tell you to say. Didn't I just tell you they're going to listen? He gives them, he yields a little bit. Now note that these signs would still require the use of faith by the Israelites because two of these three signs will be duplicated by the magicians in Egypt later on in the book. So it wasn't that these signs eradicated the need for faith, but God accommodates to the difficulty and the challenges not only of the people but also of, uh, uh, the, the, of Moses having, uh, having um, some misgivings about the people actually believing him. Now before we are, again, before we're too harsh on Moses, he represents a strange composite of boldness in his ability to argue with God in the, in the, in the burning bush and the level of timidity and he's afraid to do the task that God has called him to do. He seems to be you know, trying to squirm out of it. And I would like to draw your attention to the fact that whilst... God gave him the sign and he threw the, uh, the staff on the ground and it became a snake. He sensibly ran away, which I thought would be a strange sight to behold, beholding an 80-year-old running on a rocky mountain with no shoes on and without his walking stick. And yet, when God commands him to pick up the snake, he does. So it's this weird composite of like not listening to God's commands, but then also when he hears God's voice through the bush... And God tells him to pick up the snake. He goes and does it. Kind of like us sometimes, isn't it? We're hardly a, like a, an exhibit of steadfast faithful, uh, faithfulness to our God, are we? How we vacillate, sometimes showing boldness and sometimes showing timidity. And yet, this is the man that God chose for the task of redeeming his people. Moses then, even with all these signs in his back pockets, he moves on to the next issue. After already having brought up the issue of, who am I? Who can I say sent me? What if they don't believe and they say that you never appeared to me? Which God has already replied to, replied to these questions with saying, I will be with you, I'll be with you. My name assures you that I will be with you. They will believe in you. The Egyptians will be subdued and plundered. Here are some miracles to complement the message. What is Moses' response to all of this? No, Lord, don't send me. I have never been a good speaker. And I haven't become one since you began speaking to me. I'm a poor speaker, slow and hesitant. No, Lord, don't send me. He sees, doesn't he, the prerequisite in his mind of having some eloquence to be able to convince the people. Don't make me do it. Now he says that I have never been a good speaker. Now I wonder about this because in Acts chapter 7 verse 22 it says that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. I actually wonder whether he was once powerful in speech and then the terrible event of when he tried to stand up for his own people was a terrible shock to him and a terrible trauma that made him slow of speech. Some people have said that he had a problem with stuttering. Maybe this justifies Moses' self-doubts. And as we look forward maybe a little bit as well into chapter 6 after Pharaoh has turned up the heat and denied supplies to the people of Israel whilst demanding the same production quotas, Moses' words for all that the fact that they come from God and that maybe they were uh, mediated by Aaron who had some oratory power, the people wouldn't listen. Maybe the words still rung in Moses' ears as he heard the Israelite who he, who he was trying to reconcile shout at him, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Yet, what does the Lord respond to this? The Lord said to him in verse 11, Who gives man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? 
Who gives him sight or makes him blind? It is I, the Lord. Now go, I will, sp- I will help you to speak, and I will tell you what to say. Not only is God the one who gives the mouth, and Moses at least acknowledges his weakness in that regard, God also claims the fact that he's the one that made him hear, gave him the ability to speak, gave him his sight as well. Those are all things which are attributed to God as the creator. But what does he say? Go, reiterated already, that he will be with him. Speak, I will help you to speak. Speak, I will tell you what to say. Which finally Moses responded, Lord, thank you for all the reassurance. Now I can go with confidence knowing that you will, how completely you will be with me and help me. That was in uh, Jonathan chapter 4 verse. But uh, Moses answered, no, Lord, please send somebody else. And this, uh, I was lent a, a commentary by Pastor Brent. And I think the title for this section by Victor Hamilton was essentially, Here I am, Lord, send him. Here we see it repeated for the second time, no Lord. These words should realistically never come together as a response to a command of the Lord. No Lord. Where is any acknowledgement of God's Lordship when we say no to his commands? How poor do we view his Lordship and his fatherly love for us, which we'll come to later on in the passage, when we respond to his commands and his reassurances by saying no? And quite rightly so, at this point, the Lord became angry with Moses. And I'm not quite sure why, because I think we have the new new NIV here, but I was using the NIV, but my NIV said the Lord became angry with Moses. But the NIV here says, the bit which I like, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And I can just imagine why Moses wrote that, because he perhaps felt the heat from the bush increasing. So verse 14, at that time the Lord became angry with Moses and said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. In fact, he is now coming to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You can speak to him and tell him what to say. I will help both of you to speak and I will tell you both what to do. He will be your spokesman and speak to the people for you. Then you will be like God telling him what to say. Take your walking stick with you for it is with it that you will perform miracles. You certainly sense the exasperation in God's voice. I was actually wondering when I was reading this, when when the Lord says to Moses, what about your brother Aaron? Moses might have kind of sighed, you know, a sigh of relief. You know, God's going to send Aaron instead. I'm okay. Actually, Aaron's not even alive. I don't even know if Aaron's alive. I haven't spoken to him for the last 40 years. 83 years old is beyond life expectancy nowadays. God says, I know he can speak well, yes, but is he still alive? Oh, he's on the way, by the way. In fact, he's already on the way to meet you. No doubt, also arranged by God, and we'll come to that later on in the passage. His heart will be glad to see you, which is perhaps more than what can be said about God's heart towards Moses at the moment. And the impression that we get in this commanding tone of like a number of sentences said in in barrage is... I'm not listening to any more of your excuses. There's a tone of finality to this, isn't there? And for those of you who have children, you will know what I'm talking about when you essentially put on your tone of, we are not discussing this anymore. You certainly get that. I get that sense from God where this is, okay, here's your brother Moses. This is what we're going to do. He's going to come. He's going to be happy to see you. You're going to speak to him. He's going to speak to the people. Go and do it. And by the way, take your stuff because you're still not off the hook. You're still the one who's going to be doing the miracles. I'm not sending Aaron instead of you. And whilst, you know, there's perhaps a comic sense to that in some regard, but I don't want us to lose sight that here God is giving a very specific directive. God's accommodating to Moses' weaknesses. But don't lose sight in all of this that this is God's mission to save his people. God is pushed to anger at Moses' reluctance because God has a greater purpose of trying to save his people. And at this point in the story, if you didn't have the rest, you would start to wonder, will God ever accomplish his purposes with people like this? 
Look at all the hoops God has to jump through just to send this man to oppose Pharaoh to have the people rescued. Yet whilst that can be one way of looking at it, it can give us some level of hope because we know the completion of this story, don't we? That God did indeed fulfill his purposes even through Moses, this weak man. For what does it say in Corinthians? God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And another thing which, which, which I think would be important to, to, to highlight here is the fact of God's greatness is highlighted by the fact that he accomplishes his purposes with limited tools. I remember reading a story once a long time ago in the Reader's Digest about a surgeon that performed an open heart, emergency open heart surgery in a football field with only a drill bit. This magnified the greatness of that surgeon because he had a limited tool, limited things to work with. And how greatly is God's greatness magnified when he can fulfill his salvific purposes with such a one as Moses who is so reluctant to go. It surely gives us hope that God can use us even with our weaknesses. Now, at this point, one could say, with all this weakness in the people, why doesn't God just abandon his people? What kind of, what kind of uh, prospects and what kind of uh, characteristics do they exhibit that would be worthy of his, this, his salvation on their behalf? And yet, don't we have an incredible amount of security knowing that God's promises rest on himself, on his own faithfulness, that he won't abandon his people. What a firm foundation we have as God's people, knowing that his faithfulness is guaranteed by his own person. And imagine if God can do this with a lowly person and redeem the people of Israel. Just imagine what God could do with a truly faithful Israelite. With the true Israel. Just imagine what God could do with someone like that. Verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, uh, go back to my relatives in Egypt to see if they are still alive. Jethro agreed and told him goodbye. While Moses was still in Midian, the Lord said to him, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and set them out for Egypt, carrying the walking stick that the Lord had told him to take. Moses goes and gets permission from his father-in-law, and perhaps doesn't give him a whole, much, a whole amount of detail. His, his explanation is, I want to go and see if the people are still alive. And this would be strange that God would be wanting to save a people that has already been made extinct. Now, Jethro was a priest, we know, of what God we don't know. And Moses was likely an, an outsider in this Midianite family. One, one son-in-law of seven, perhaps. And even though Jethro, being a Midianite priest, exhibits no resistance to Moses' will to go, Perhaps he would have been taking a, a, an economic or a, a practical hit. He was losing, in all likelihood, three uh, able men who, who were able to work. And yet the plan gets set. Moses goes ahead. And in verse 19, whilst Moses was still in Midian, the Lord said to him, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. I get the impression here that there was perhaps a little bit of lingering whilst Moses was still in Midian. And although we don't know this in any certain terms, we know that it wasn't more than the span of a year because Moses had the Lord appear to him both when he was 80 years old and he also appeared in Pharaoh's court to challenge him also when he was 80 years old. We're not sure how much time passed, but I see here in this bit a bit of accommodation by the Lord, telling him to go, maybe highlighting the one thing which was the big factor which was causing Moses to be so reluctant. For those who wanted to kill you are dead. 
Pharaoh, the one, the king of this great civilization, perhaps his adopted father, I'm not entirely sure, was dead now. And yet for all the shortcomings we've seen of Moses that we've already looked at and highlighted, he proceeds to obey and takes the staff of the Lord with him. Verse 21. Again the Lord said to Moses, Now that you are going back to Egypt, be sure to perform before the king all the miracles which I have given you the power to do. But I will make the king stubborn and he will not let the people go. Then you must tell him that I, the Lord, Say, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you to let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refused. Now I am going to kill your firstborn son. He gives further instructions. Now do all that I have commanded to do. Before the, uh, the Lord had told him, the king will need to be compelled by a mighty hand. But now God gives him a little bit more information. The king will not go, and I will make the king stubborn, and he will not let the people go. And the king will be hardened and in the face of this hardened heart, God would have something declared, which I would like to take a few moments to dwell on. Israel is my firstborn son. This will be the proclamation. Israel is my son. The love of the father for the son, Israel. And whilst the idea of God being a father to his people is very common and frequent to us, this is perhaps one of the first places in scripture we see it. And what had Israel to offer God to be worthy of this love of a father for a son? They were a destitute people and as we look in chapter 6, described as a people with a broken spirit. Not only that, not all of them had been faithful to worship the Lord. Some had adopted the worship of false gods. Some of them didn't even know God as the God of the covenant. And yet God refers to them as my son, using a familial term. In Hosea chapter 1 it says, When Israel was a child I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And whilst we know that this is ultimately applied to Christ our Saviour, I'd like us to perhaps look at the fulfillment of that in the opposite direction because we know through the New Testament the love that the Father has for the Son because what was declared at the baptism, this is my beloved Son. And knowing as we do, as we've seen in many places in in the New Testament, how the Father loves the Son, how the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, that that description that the Father has for the Son, Jesus Christ our Saviour, would be used in a kind of a prequel sense for Israel. Don't we see how great and how wondrous a thing it is that God loves us as his children and that somehow this would form the thing that would point towards Christ our Saviour. Here the fatherly love of God, knowing his superlative love for Christ our Saviour, and wonder that this same language is used for his people. Listen to Hosea chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. I led Israel along with the ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped to feed him. You can hear, you know, a parent and a child there, isn't it? And what did they have to offer in their pitiable state? And what does Deuteronomy chapter 7 say about this? The Lord, this is the Lord speaking. The Lord did not set his affection on you, the people of Israel, or choose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of the, Pharaoh, uh, of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. What was lovely in them for God to set his love on them like that? And yet he calls them his son, a, t- a term that he doesn't, that you would think is jealously guarded by the Godhead exclusively for the Son of God. But he applies it to his people, saying essentially, I love you because I love you. 
But praise be to God who is faithful to his covenant and sets his love on his people even whilst they are oppressed and destitute and in a wretched state of oppression. Perhaps even before they know the Lord their God. Praise be to the God who loves his people and calls them his son. And God continues talking about the familial protection that he will, he will offer them. I told you to let my son go so that he might worship me. Verse 23. But you have refused. Now I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Why does God save his people? We see in the previous verse that God saves us for the purpose that we may worship him. God issues a threat against Pharaoh and his household that he will kill the heir to the throne. He will kill the next God in their pantheon because he has refused to take, let this, the Son of God, the Israelite people, go and worship him. Now we come to perhaps the most challenging section of this, of this text uh, in verse 24 to verse 26. At a camping place on, uh, on the way to Egypt, the Lord met Moses and tried to kill him. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, and touched Moses' feet with it. Because of the rite of circumcision, she said to Moses, You are a husband of blood to me. So the Lord spared Moses' life. I got worried because... Uh, Initially, when I was assigned the passage, I thought the passage that I had been assigned was when Moses intercedes for the people. I was like, okay, this is great. It points to Christ very easily. And a few weeks passed. And then, I was like, Exodus chapter 4, doesn't that happen way later in the book? Okay, and then I thought, oh, this passage, oh, this is so difficult. This is the type of passage when you're reading the Bible, you're like, this is kind of weird. I need to ask the pastor that one day. (laughs) And then you forget about it. And you certainly don't, you know. And I got worried because the, the, the commentary which uh, Pastor Brent gave me started with this. David Penchansky, in 1999, began his study of this incident with these words. Biblical scholars love this passage because it is totally incomprehensible. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. And if it is incomprehensible to the scholars, what about the other 98% of Bible students and readers? And then he goes on to say, essentially, this passage raises so many questions. And then he says, I cannot claim to answer all or any of these questions with certainty. It's like, great. I'm going to do my best. But be gracious to me. This is certainly an odd and a bizarre passage. right? And actually, just before I continue, I remember once... uh, it was a, a source of comfort in the last few days. Uh, Hugh uh, Campbell had told me once when I was preparing for Sunday school. He said, you don't need to have all the answers, okay? If you can encourage people to read their Bible and figure it out for themselves, that's good. <laughs> so if anything, I hope that you will take this passage and go and study it yourself. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> okay. So on the way to Egypt, before meeting Aaron, which was at the mountain of God, which means that Moses hadn't gone very far, this rather grotesque situation occurs. God comes to kill Moses. His wife rushes to circumcise his son. Why didn't Moses perform the circumcision at the right time? Putting things together, I would start to guess that this child was no longer a baby because he had met his wife 40 years ago. He probably got married and had the child relatively quickly, I would have thought. So this child is likely to be an adult. This is 40 years later. You know, why didn't God warn him in a more kind of civilized fashion? God goes and threatens to kill him. Why did Moses even include this passage? I mean, he could have, it's kind of an embarrassing story, isn't it? He could have just, he's the author of this. It's like, okay, and then this bit. Yeah, I'm going to include this story now, you know. And when I've come to difficult passages like this, like in the New Testament where it says baptism saves you, or Jesus went, uh, you know, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, you know, uh, before the flood or something like that, you know, you start to, I've wondered in these passages, okay, if you remove this passage, what happens to the, to the text? Do you lose something significant? And I have to admit, the first time I was like, Lord, it would have been way easier if you just removed this passage, and then, you know, Moses gets given the signs and everything, and then finally he goes to, to Egypt. Why is this story included? What did this story add at all? 
And what I would like to propose, without much help from the commentators, <laughs> is that on both sides of this passage, God presents himself repeatedly as the God of the ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant. And when we see God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we should really see that as a shorthand for saying the God of the covenant, the God who has made covenant with his people. And this was also the words that were used to back, this was what the, the sign was supposed to show to prove that it is this God that has, been, has commissioned this message. And when the people are crushed under the yoke of Pharaoh as he uh, increases their de the demands on them, it is these words that are also used to comfort them then as well. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am that God, that covenant God. So I would say that this passage surely has the indications that it is the covenant which is trying to be raised in its to put a spotlight on it. It's a surely a bizarre way to do that, but that's what I think is happening. Another point I would like to make is that when the severity of what happens needs to speak for something, when you have a severe reaction as a parent, it's usually in proportion with the thing done or not done. When your child runs into the street and you see a car coming, there's a severity in the way you tell your child once you've grabbed them isn't there? What are you doing? You know, you're screaming at them most likely, right? There's a severity which is in proportion with what is happening. And I would think that this helps to highlight the fact that it is the covenant and covenant faithfulness which is a matter of life and death. You would have thought it would have been easier for God to just say, did you know that the covenant is a matter of life and death? Help, but this is the way the story is there. Furthermore, I would be a little bit careful on trying to make too much allegories of this passage on how it could point to Christ. One of the things which was, uh, uh, which was challenging is that the New Testament doesn't pick up this passage in any way, which makes it difficult because I sure wish that the Apostle Paul had commented on this before I did, or Jesus in his road to Emmaus. They could have just said, and Jesus said this about this story because this is a difficult one, but he doesn't tell us. Now, the other thing is, is that surely if God wanted to absolutely kill Moses, he would have dropped dead like Uzzah did. You know, Uzzah, he, he stabilized the Ark of the Covenant and he fell dead. So God seems to have left some little space there for an intervention. Final point that I would like to make, and maybe you're saying you're not actually drawing any clear conclusions from this. I'm just doing a few observations. Moses, for all of his knowledge of God, having been from God's people and being raised both by the Egyptians but also by his mother, it took this Midianite wife, who was one of seven daughters of a priest of some unknown God, she somehow sussed out the situation and knew what was going on. She knew enough about this God, knowing that it was non-compliance with this covenant that was bringing God to kill Moses. And whilst we could, uh, like I said, whilst we could try to extrapolate this on why this could point to Christ, maybe Moses is the innocent one who's going to be struck so that the, the child would live, or maybe it's the child who's going to be struck so that Moses will live, or maybe it's the wife intervening and propitiating. I think essentially what is happening here, it's highlighting the fact that pe the people of God have any currency with God because He's faithful to his covenant. John Calvin goes to long extent to explain what happens here, that maybe Moses, he had circumcised, because it was only he went after one of his child, so he's obviously circumcised one of them. Maybe he's, he circumcised one of them, but then he got too much flack from his Midianite family, so then he didn't, and then he, but he should have, he should have fought against his father-in-law, and he didn't want us to rock the boat too much for the second child. But I would like to say that although those are all possible things, I, I would, my uh, way of viewing this is, and I, I think it supports the passage, is that it elevates to a center stage how important God's covenant is in dealing with his people. Being out of covenant with God is a matter of life and death. And this very severe reaction maybe highlights how incredible 
how incredibly um, treacherous a situation you are in if you are out of covenant with the Lord. And yet maybe how drastic this situation seems is because we're not used to circumcision and yet have become so accustomed and used to the Son of God hanging on a cross. And that, is no, that no longer has the shock value that this story has. I've given you my attempt. Now let's move on to the last part of this passage. Chapter, uh, verse 27. Meanwhile, the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert and meet Moses. So he went to meet him at the holy mountain. And when he met him, he kissed him. Then, the Lord, then Moses uh, told Aaron everything that the Lord had said. And when he had told him, to ret- uh, and said when he had told him to return to Egypt. Sorry. He also told him about the miracles which the Lord had ordered him to perform. So Moses and Aaron went to Egypt. He gathered all the Israelite leaders together. Moses told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. Moses performed all the miracles in front of the people. They believed, and when they heard the Lord had come to, uh, had come to them and had seen how they had been treated cruelly, they bowed down and worshipped. You surely get a summary form, right, of what happened. Aaron came to Moses, they greeted, Moses, uh, Moses told him everything, they returned to Egypt, they did the, uh, he told them about the miracles, they go to the, the leaders, they tell them everything, they show them the signs, they, they, they believe, they worship the Lord. It's kind of a very short summary in all the things that Moses had been apprehensive about prior to this passage. A few notes here. Moses obviously didn't get very far, he was still at the mountain of the Lord. There's Uh, and I know this is an argument from silence, but there's no record of Aaron's resistance. And I think this highlights a huge contrast between Aaron's resistance or Aaron's reaction and Moses' reaction. Whilst we know Aaron isn't exactly um, an angel, he'll be... uh, he'll be complicit later on in the, in the, in the book in bringing forth the, the, um, the, the golden calf. We must note here that Aaron was returning to the land of his slavery. He was also returning as the older brother being subservient to the younger brother. He was also returning to the land of his oppression. And yet, with all of that baggage and difficulty, and I don't know how he escaped, yet he would hear the words that Moses would say, his younger brother, in whose shadow he may have always lived, and unresentfully obey and be willing to be kind of the sidekick a little bit. As we move to conclusion, let's look at the final reaction of the people of Israel. Verse 31, they believed, and when they heard that the Lord had come to them and had seen how they were being treated cruelly, they bowed down and worshipped. They believed when they heard about the Lord. They saw the miracles. They saw the staff, the hand, the water turning into blood. They believed. A few things I would like to point out here. There was no indication in the text that there was any clarification required on which God was being talked about. They knew this was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of the covenant. And whilst we can look, and as I end up here, we can look and perhaps take their response and discard it and and, uh, discount it somewhat because we would know of their track record of obedience later on in the history, not even going forward all the way as they would be when there would be a kingdom. We would only have to look at the, their terrible reaction with the rebellion and the golden calf and the complaining in the, in the wilderness. Let's not look so far that we discount their response at the moment. Because God, when he looks at Israel's response here, when he laments Israel's unfaithfulness later on, he will have some form of godly nostalgia to the way that they responded now. If you look in at Hosea chapter 2, she, uh, God talking about how he wishes Israel will react one day. She will give herself to me there, as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. There's some sense of godly nostalgia as God remembers how they initially responded to him. And what was the response? They bowed down and they worshipped the Lord. 
So as we draw to conclusion this morning, let us be reminded in this passage of God's power despite Moses' weakness. Let us be reminded of God's accommodating patience even in the face of all Moses' excuses and the way that God provided the miracles and a helper. Let us remember that even as we know how the Father loves the Son, that this is a description and a way that God relates to his people. He has called us his children. He loves us. And let us too also respond with a worshipful response of bowing down and worship. We too who have been redeemed, who when we were in our weakness and poverty and faltering obedience, let us hear how the Father in his covenantal love has set his love on us. Be reminded again of God's relentlessness in working out the salvation of his people when they were in bondage. And even as we come with a unique point of view now on the other side of the cross, not only knowing that the exodus of the Israelites is complete, showing how God works to accomplish his salvation even through weak means for his weak people, we can come not having to imagine but knowing how our covenant faithful God works through a perfectly obedient man, even a God-man, the true Israel. Therefore, let us today respond as they did and bow down and worship our God. Let us pray together. Lord, remind us once again of your power, your greatness, your covenant faithfulness, Lord. Remind us that you have showered your love on us as your children and as your, with fatherly love, you have approached us, Lord. Help us to see all that you are. And as we see how you have saved us and redeemed us, Lord, help us to respond with bowing down and worshipping you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close the service this morning, I'll read a famous uh, benediction from the book of, uh, book of Jude, I believe. Now to him who is able to keep you and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. You may be seated and you're dismissed.